Who knew what when? The mistakes have been made here. Confronting our history. This is stuff that Hollywood movies are made of. And paying for influence. Come. Welcome to New Zealand. E te tī e te tā nau mai rā ki Inside Parliament i tēnei te wiki o te reo Māori i a mātou e āta wānanga nei ngā aupiki me ngā auheke o te wiki tōranga pū. Kia ora and welcome to Inside Parliament. It's a weekly catch-up where we discuss all of the political issues we've been covering this week on One News. I'm Mikey Sherman. I'm... I'm- you go. <laughs> and I'm Jessica Much McGuire. That was just such a long, beautiful intro. <laughs> I know, we, we, we ruined it with our one thing. Sorry, Mikey. Sorry. Alrighty, guys, here we go. We're going to get straight into it with our peaks this week. And Benedict, would you please kick us off? Yeah, so I did a um, track earlier this week that we're going to have a little a look at a little bit later in the podcast. But it enraged a lot of people. And I, I couldn't help but have a little look at some of the Facebook feedback we got. And this one stood out. Um, I'll read it out to you. And I uh, put it out in a tweet saying this is the best feedback I've had all year. This is a very angry gentleman who watched the story. This story has to be the worst case of journalism I have ever seen. It was a completely one-sided, biased piece that was clearly designed to influence the news and not report it, which is your main purpose. I, I quite enjoyed that. And <laughs> a lot of people furious with the story that we'll have a, have a little look at later. Classic gold. Check yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Classic gold feedback you, there. You, you, yeah, you can feel the, the rage on his keyboard as he, as he typed it in. Yeah, yeah the number one rule really, is never read the Facebook comments, it really but I'm made glad me happy. that it gave you mm. joy. Yeah. It did. Alrighty, my peak this week uh, uh, has to be all of the Māori issues that we've had um, here at Parliament this week, including uh, Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. I did a story on Monday, um, completely in Te Reo Māori for One News. It was awesome. And we also had um, our wonderful uh, Māori correspondent, Yvonne Tahana, who also did the same thing um, to celebrate Māori Language Week. And it gives me great joy when we have Kaupapa Māori um, on the news and covering it here at Parliament, including... um, the story that I did yesterday on the New Zealand wars, which we'll take a look at a little bit later. Um, so yeah, lots of good stuff, all including the uh, first reading of the pardon for Tuhoi Prophet Ruakenana here in Parliament yesterday, which uh, interestingly enough brought Nanaia Mahuta to tears, um, and that was also another good track by Yvonne Tahana. So some good Māori kaupapa this week, which I always enjoy. Uh, my peak this week, um, we actually had a, a dinner last night with the US ambassador. The press gallery were invited um, to have a, a bit of a barbecue and it was really nice to um, get together and have a chat with him and with um, other journos and um, highlight probably was the brisket. We had an American style barbecue and that was amazing. So um, yeah, a nice evening and that was that was my peak. What about pits? And now pits, do you have a pit, Benedict? Not really, it's been a pretty... Pretty interesting week with a lot of big stories. So I've yeah been yeah. pretty engaged and yeah yeah yeah. Mm. My pit probably just has to go uh, with the peak, and that is that when you're doing a story uh, in Te Reo Māori, you're basically doing two stories because you're having to yeah. uh, translate um, Te Reo into English, and we did subtitles, and that's always a bit tricky, especially when you're dealing with a deadline. Um, and then also when you're dealing with Māori kaupapa, they love a good karakia in the morning. So yesterday's New Zealand Wars announcement, uh, we were all here at about. 5am at Parliament. Uh, so, you know, that was a bit of a pit and to go with the peak. A with long a 6pm <laughs> deadline. Day. Yeah, it's a yeah. little bit of a yeah. long yeah. day. Gotta you love did, it. You did very well though. Um, my peak, uh, my pitch this week, I think was just, this story has been a hard one. It's um, the whole Labour story. I, I think it's there's been a lot of, um, it's, it's emotive, it's it's sensitive, it's dealing with um, complainants, it's dealing um, with people who are involved in this. And I, and I just, 
I think there have been moments that just haven't been very very fun and very enjoyable when it's pure politics and you know most politicians sign up for this stuff it's the theatre of politics and it and it's fun and you enjoy your job even if it's if it's you're chasing someone or doing something this one just feels a bit different and I think that it, that's had moments where it hasn't um, felt very nice this week when um, you, yeah when you when you're sort of reporting on an issue where you know there are lots of upset young people yeah. in the background as well, right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of that whole, that underpins all of this and all of the politics that comes on top of that. But on that note, um, let's have a look at um, my story on that. Putting on a brave face with not a lot to smile about. Allegations over a Labour staffer following her around the country. We should have done better. Not going to deny mistakes have been made here. The Prime Minister maintained she didn't know about claims of sexual assault until Monday, despite media speculation for five weeks. Some weeks ago I sought assurances around uh, the allegations that were being investigated by the party. It goes right to the heart, actually, of the kind of leadership that she wanted to display and that a lot of young women believed in her for. This is your party, you are the Prime Minister, buck stops with you. End of story. If you didn't know about it, then you're not doing your job right. The Prime Minister says she did follow up on the issue. I was told that no complainant had come to them and claimed that they'd been sexually assaulted. Paula Bennett says two of the 12 complainants told her they raised allegations of sexual assault on behalf of others with senior Labour staffers. They went to make complaints about their own of bullying and intimidation and in that said they believe there's other complaints around um, sexual assaults. The Finance Minister has also repeatedly refused to say when he knew about any claims of sexual assault. I am not getting into any specifics about that. Those specifics won't be known for at least a month while a high-powered investigation is underway. The Prime Minister denies she's hiding behind it. I, I would reject that. Three panellists looked into the allegations of bullying against the Labour staffer, including Tracy McLennan. In an interesting turn of events, she's now stepping in as party president after Nigel Horwath's resignation. This is very temporary. There's only a, a matter of uh, the weeks required to ballot members. Perhaps not ideal when the party is in clean-up mode. So the big development on the story from yesterday was obviously the second head to roll in this um, and that was the resignation of the Labour staffer at the centre of this and that happened late this late yesterday afternoon he handed in his resignation the Prime Minister said thank you very much um, he put out a statement um, saying that you know he still vehemently denies the allegations um, that he stood down because he wanted he didn't want the attention um, on on for the government to be a distraction um, and that he will still cooperate with this inquiry. So he's been on on gardening leave by choice, if you like. Um, so his resignation there, then that follows Nigel um, Horth, the party president, obviously. So it's just been um, each day there's been a new big development. Um, we started reporting the story on the Monday after uh, the spin-off uh, talked to one of the victims there and it sort of it's it snowballed um, throughout out the whole week I think that's a way that you um, used to describe it um, it feels like it gained momentum the story and there's just so many layers and so many complexities and so many moving parts you've got prime minister senior ministers her senior staff there's there's lots going on here.
That's right. And I think, for me, I feel like Labour's been in absolute panic mode. And it has been because you've had people like Grant Robertson under pressure. Hey, what did they know? When did they know it? You know, his answers, you know, looking like he's not really telling us what he what he knows on this. You've got the Prime Minister caught up in it, you know, lots of the, the top officials in, in her office all under sort of scrutiny after Paula Bennett named them all in the House uh, and outside the House as well. Um, you know, all, I feel like the real panic mode, the look on their faces this week. Um, and I was, it was interesting, I was chatting to a, another journalist in the press gallery yesterday who was saying he wonders whether they've really the way they've sort of acted and behaved this week is a sort of a sign that they've really been missing having Winston Peters here um, you know someone who is, who is a little bit removed but but you know who's who's been through these sort of issues before and maybe would have had a bit more of a stable kind of Steady guiding hand, hand for the government the because it's not just damaging for labor right it's damaging for the for the government as well and I was sort of wondering about that myself it's um, interesting I hadn't mm, thought about that hugely damaging um, for the labor party haven't handled it at all very well um, and it's dragged out for so long the Prime Minister plagued um, just in the last couple of days about questions as to whether or not she moved quickly and strongly enough within the last five weeks given that's when it was uh, first raised with her um, by media um, so that five week block is, is a big time the fact that they hadn't gotten on top of it um, and that it's exploded um, this week to include two resignations is huge and it really does call into question who the Prime Minister has had around her to help her deal um, uh, with and defuse this situation and you've got to question her Chief of Staff and whether um, that person has played um, a leading enough role um, in this to help get it under control because um, if they did you'd like to think perhaps it hadn't gotten this bad um, after so long. Um, so really some clean-up mode happening this week with those two resignations, I think. Interesting to see um, the staffer say yesterday that he didn't want to distract from the government's work. It's well beyond that point. I think the other point that I was going to make as well is that what you've, what you've got here is you've got um, 12 complainants in this. You've also got people who are prepared to speak out on bullying um, but perhaps not ready yet to speak out against allegations of sexual assault. Um, Add into the mix of it that you've got um, some people who are prepared to do that third hand, so on behalf of someone else. And I think that's where you've got um, these layers of complexity about who knew what and when. But to me, the overall if you strip all of that back and that's and I think you know it's, it's a complex thing and I think even for us in the midst of it and the thick of it there's a lot going on here but if you strip everything back the Labour Party created a process where people didn't feel like they were heard and didn't feel comfortable enough to report wide-ranging allegations and that's the problem here they are a party who states their reputation on it, the Prime Minister did, and that's why the President had to go, because that's that's awful, that's atrocious, that the the victims in it didn't feel like they'd, they'd had their point come across, and, that, and that's hard, like it's hard for <coughs> to complain, and you should feel like you've been heard, you've been understood, and that didn't happen in this, so that's the big umbrella thing 
over it all too. And I think that the complainants also felt that people in the Labour Party were deliberately trying to protect the the accused rather than you know take their complaints seriously as Which well. Which is huge. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, like a, a club protecting your own. That's mm. massive. I think the um, sexual abuse survivors that were on um, one uh, TV One Breakfast um, and who were in that story of yours um, mm. pretty much um, uh, boiled it down uh, really simply, and that is that the Prime Minister, um, you know, she went to the UN and spoke about Me Too needs to become We Too, and she's wanted to. Um, uh, lead um, on this issue in that way um, and basically the buck stops in this whole process with her and that's what they said that she should have known, she should have found out the buck stops with her and she hasn't shown strong leadership on that and that's got to be a real damaging blow for Jacinda Ardern And that's one of the things I asked her about earlier in the week, I said um, you know, you, the victims who have been, or a collection of, of um, the Complainants and and supporters um, put out an email, and one of them was, you know, Prime Minister, we look to you as a champion for women, for um, those who are marginalised, for those who feel underrepresented, um, and we need you to restore that confidence um, that we have in you. And I put that to the Prime Minister, and I was like, do you feel that keenly when you're dealing with all of this? Because she has come out loudly, and she said, yeah, I do, and I'm trying to deal with it. And I think that must be hard as a politician on that level, because that's that's personal, that's what you promise. It's not, um, I reckon that's the thing, that, that's the stuff that would keep you awake at night. Um, she'd probably and she's, it's got to be tricky for the Prime Minister because she's got to have to be able to rely on people like her president. And she said, you know, I asked them categorically and they and they, they told me no, that those things hadn't been hadn't been raised with her. And, you know, she's you, you've got to give her some sort of slack because she is the Prime Minister. She's got a whole lot going on. But that's why I call into question the, the likes of her senior team, her, her chief of staff and others who have been around her, who have obviously failed in their job to help sort this issue out for her, um, and she's had to come in strong this week, and um, and then we've seen those resignations. Uh, really interesting that they didn't. I think when you get to a level where you've got at least six complainants, twelve that we know of, but six that actually came um, forward to the party and laid complaints. At what point do you say actually we need to hand this over to an independent person to undertake this process so that we can be confident that it is a proper process that we're following here otherwise you do leave yourself vulnerable to um, being responsible for a process that may not have gone down well or, or could have been better it may have been better in hindsight for them to have handed that over especially when you're dealing with uh, such a large number of complaints. And that's why that's what the Prime Minister has now stepped in and done, but they should have done that themselves. But while all of this was going on, the, the government did try and make um, several announcements this week. Um, one of them, uh, Mikey covered, so let's have a look at her story on that. Confronting the real face of our past, the New Zealand war saw 3,000 lives lost, including here at the Battle of Oraco in Waikato. Why, cracky, this is stuff that Hollywood movies are made of. It's those stories which will now headline history classes across the country. New Zealand history will become part of our core curriculum in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And not before time for many. Well, it's better than knowing about it other countries. If we don't know our history, then it's pretty hard to move forward. 
At the moment, it's up to each school how it teaches New Zealand history. I cannot hand on part tell you how many students learn New Zealand's history in our education system? There's a whole generation out there who weren't exposed to that during their, their education. Now nothing will be left to chance with the new curriculum. No longer can we kind of hide half of our history um, under the covers and say, well, things didn't happen. Successive governments have gone through the selective amnesia process. They've forgotten about our stories. Helping MPs remember a new plaque unveiled today. Parliament has long recognised New Zealand's international war efforts but hadn't done the same for local conflicts. The wars of the mid-19th century profoundly shaped our nation and its people more than any other conflict. The Ministry of Education will work alongside experts including iwi to update New Zealand's history curriculum which will come into effect in 2022. Despite such a bloody past, it's believed teaching it will deliver greater understanding of our national story. I'm of the view that our tamariki are very resilient. It's actually the adults that don't cope with this. It's the adults that are still coming to terms with this history. A history that will now be more widely known in the future. So this is a really significant announcement from the government yesterday, um, appropriate to that they used uh, Māori Language Week to um, deliver it. Uh, I know that a number of the iwi leaders who were at yesterday's announcement, they thought they were showing up for the unveiling of a plaque um, which commemorated the New Zealand wars in the debating chamber of parliament. And then when the Prime Minister announced in her speech um, that New Zealand's history would be a core part of the um, New Zealand curriculum, there was some, you know, gasp of delight and cheer um, genuinely from those in the crowd. I'm really happy to hear it. And when I interviewed the likes of Rahui Papa, who is a leader within Waikato Tainui, he said, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we heard from the government and the education ministry saying, oh, we can't force these things on schools and tell them um, how to and dictate to them how um, they set out their curriculum. It's there as an option. So he noticed that they had really changed their position on that um, and also noted that it had been in such a short period of time because it wasn't that long ago that the government and the ministry were making those comments that you know we can't come in and, and strong arm schools and tell mm. them do this and do that uh, but that's obviously what's happened yesterday um, and much to the delight of those that we spoke to including history teachers association and so on so it'd be really good to see how this all rolls out. Do, do we have any understanding of how many schools at the moment are teaching no, and that's what the Prime Minister said, and I thought it poignant to put it in the track um, that we actually played out last night on the news, that she couldn't put her hand on her heart and say just how many New Zealand mm. students were learning New Zealand history because it's just not something that we monitor, um, and because it is optional and it's up to schools how they do that, you, you can't ever really know. I think what struck me in your story from last night is that um, we, so in in. Parliament in the debating chamber, um, the press gallery is, is behind the speaker. So we um, spend a lot of time in question time sitting there and looking down and, and sometimes when the questions get um, mildly tedious, um, you, your eye does wander around a little. And seeing those, you know, the the wars commemorated on the walls, but not having our own. And that kind of struck me that it's... Um, it, it seems like such a glaring omission yeah, that we yeah. hadn't really <laughs> noticed before. And... Mm. You, and, and um, you and Adam did a good job of, of splicing them together just to show all of those. And I think for us, we sit um, here and so we look directly 
um, at that. And I just think that it's an interesting interesting point to make that we should be, rep- in our own debating chamber, we should be representing our own history. Ruakere Hond, um, who's a, a leader within the um, Taranaki tribes, he made a good point because I sort of asked him, "Oh, you know, this this is heavy. This is heavy stuff. Our history. You know, there's, there's blood spilt, and um, you know, it can sometimes bring up a lot of uh, resentment, guilt, all those different emotions. And how are our children going to cope in the classrooms when we deal with this stuff, which is, you know, in our own backyard?" And he said, um, "Actually, children are very resilient, and it's more the adults who um, struggle with our history." So mm. um, he. He made a good point, and he and he also, you know, was at pains to to point out that we're not going to be putting the heavy stuff on onto our kids. Um, we're just going to be introducing it lightly and, and some of the key things, and then and then build that information as they get older. So it won't be, you know, this is a, this happened and and all of this heavy stuff, you know, at, at sort of seven or eight years old. Um, so I think yeah, it's going it's going to be great. This will um, probably give you a little insight into my childhood, but. Um, my dad particularly found that he is um, a bit of a buff on all things history. It's his, it's his jam. But when we'd go on holiday places or visit new places, he'd be taking us up to, um, you know, the sites where battles took place or to historic paths and things like that. And I remember, you know, as a kid going physically to those places and, and often there were plaques there or memorials and things like that and seeing them. And I think it does, you know, it's part of, growing up and being a Kiwi kid and um, it also probably shows a little bit of my um, geekiness but um, I love it yeah. it's awesome but do you know what I mean like I think I remember you know on hot days up in Northland hiking up hills and you know stand there and read the plaque and then tell me about you know that's just um, that's part of being a kid and, and perhaps not quite to that um, degree but lots of Kiwi kids will have had some kind of experience like that and going to those places and um, you know, yep, it is the responsibility of, of parents, but it's also the responsibility of, of schools and teachers to to teach us about where we came from and what happened and why people feel the way that they feel about things in in today's society and the history behind it. I think it's really important. And speaking of forced history lessons, here's one of your own. Um, here's some pictures and some images and interviews from 1972. <laughs> The most essential thing that we're trying to achieve is to make the public aware that the Maori language is not dead and has no real hope of dying. Um, the Maori language is a very real and living thing. You can see this, it's a, it's a prime language of the Marae. Not only that, but um, half of our towns well, more than half of our towns in New Zealand are Māori ones, our street names are Māori ones, and so the, it's a language that's really part of um, everyone's everyday life. Next paragraph, Friday. 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 So if you can use the language at home and in New Zealand with place names, and I think that's a good thing because with French, you know, you can't really speak it in New Zealand unless in the classroom. Whereas with the Maori language, you can speak it to the Maori people and place names and sort of everything like that. From a Maori point of view, I think you get to learn a lot. Learn something of the uh, Maori language, the culture and the heritage. And you learn to get along with um, Maoris, learn to get along with the Pākehās in different environments. 
So that was um, on the 1972 Māori Language Petition, and that helped lead to the establishment of Māori Language Week um, a few years later in 1975. But now we're going to have a look at my influences track from this week. Hollywood stars. Welcome to New Zealand. Bollywood celebrities. It's amazing. It's, it's just amazing. And YouTube sensations. GoPro and Tourism New Zealand are sending us to New Zealand on like an epic adventure. Promoting our country on the taxpayer's dime. No, it's not a free holiday. We're very careful about who we choose to partner with and what we expect from that relationship. These people are known as influencers and they're increasingly being used to promote products, businesses and now the government. For a modern, in-touch democracy, it is a no-brainer to use a social media influencer as part of your outreach. The biggest spender by far was Tourism New Zealand with $7 million. The seven-day trip by American actress Bryce Dallas Howard cost $1 million alone. That formed the basis of our marketing activity in the US for more than a year. Tourism New Zealand estimates it had an 18 to 1 return on investment for this campaign. A million dollars too going to a campaign with director James Cameron. It's not just tourism, other government departments are using social influences too. Welcome to this instructional video on how to vote. The transport agency paying this influencer to encourage cycling. And Statistics New Zealand using All Black Geordie Barrett to promote the census. Oranga Tamariki spending more than 4,000 No privacy when you're taking a shower to promote Children's Day. But Kiwis aren't so sure about it. That's um, a ridiculous amount of money. It does sound a little bit screwed up. It's disappointing because they should be doing using that money for a lot of other things. But as more and more taxpayer dollars get pumped to influencers, there's a call for the government to ensure transparency. There are clearly some question marks about if, if each piece of content has been clearly labelled to become an advertisement. This picture from Bryce Dallas Howard, for example, not labelled an advertisement. The people we partner with are so excited that they do their own personal posts. Kiwi taxpayers paying out millions to some of the world's most well-off and influential people. Now, that story was a little bit of a case of me piggybacking in on someone else's hard work. Our um, political producer has spent months and months and months um, OIAing every single government department um, that exists, getting the, um, the numbers back on the types of influences that they um, that they hire and that they employ to promote different things. Um, look, not terribly surprised to see Tourism New Zealand out there, you know, spending the vast uh, majority of, of the money there, of, of course, but you know it is it is kind of interesting. I think to look at you know how we are handing over money to people who are incredibly wealthy. You know your Hollywood stars, your Bollywood stars who are in there. Um, you know you, you're all blacks to to try and promote things as well. And then World Tourism New Zealand is a pretty obvious example. Sort of interesting to see you know things like the census being uh, promoted there by influence as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, sure, Geordie Barrett would have wanted to steer clear of his uh, association with that after the botched census. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I do. Uh, what's interesting here is, is I guess um, for many of us, influences are a part of life, and um, you know people have made whole careers out of them, and it feels like government departments are you know sort of five, six, seven years behind that and in, in getting onto this and taking advantage of it. And yep, it's a very, um, it's a strategic tool that that you can use to promote things. But I do think that, you know, when it's when it's taxpayer money, um, it's interesting to see where it goes and how it's spent. And, and that's what you're highlighting in the story. But I do, 
I like the fact that perhaps for some of our, our viewers, um, influences aren't a very familiar a familiar thing and mm. and presenting that and showing that would have been quite interesting all of those voxies they were they weren't that uh, impressed were they they were a little bit uh, upset to see uh, the government oodles and oodles yeah, millions and millions of dollars yeah it was an interesting story in a couple of ways as well because it's it's not often here at parliament with tv a lot of our stories, you know, are not the most fascinating picture-wise. There's lots of drama and sort of and theatre at Parliament, but picture-wise, it's not always the case. And here was one story that really stood out that we just had so much beautiful vision to, to play with for that story. And I'm quite interested, Justin, it really seemed to fire people up, um, just yeah. in the feedback that we got. Like, I had quite a few people talking to me about that story this week, you know. Oh, what a beat-up, you know, they were saying to me and stuff like that. But I don't know what it is that just... Because to me, we just sort of spelled it out like, hey, this is what government departments are spending. And we had, you know, experts saying, well, in this day and age, you kind of need to be in this kind of market to be, you know, bring in the, you know, get, getting that, um, spending the money on advertising to get that influence and, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's something there, though, that just set people and off. And I think you and I had the, a similar experience that, that you had some people, I mean the money itself isn't a huge amount of, of money in the, in the scheme of things of government spending but it's the principle of it and I think that that's, I had a lot of people coming up and talking about it and, yeah. and that's when you sort of know if you've got the water cooler chatter yes. you've probably, <laughs> you've probably got something that people find interesting. I mean I guess the fact that it led you know, our, our one news bulletin as well. That obviously means it has a. It's seen by a lot of people, but um, it, it's interesting that just a story like that kind of kind of captivates people quite a lot, and they and everyone has, seems to have an opinion on it. I think yeah. it's the, probably the notion that the government, you've got government departments, taxpayer money. You know, you've got to duck your eyes and cross your t's, signing up to things um, which are in the same round as the likes of the Kardashians and so on. Yeah. So I think people find it probably a little bit tricky to correlate the two things, and that's what we saw in those public opinions it, in your story. And I did find it interesting. Tourism New Zealand, and they're saying, oh well, we estimate we've got a return of eighteen to one um, on the on the million dollars we spent on. The you know, on this particular advertisement that went into the US. I'm always a little suspicious of when people, you know, evaluate the, the return on their own advertising spend. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they came up with that figure. But, you know, I, I have to say, sometimes when you're scrolling through Instagram, I can be a little bit influenced by things. So hopefully, you know, if we get more tourists yeah. spending big bucks in New Zealand, you and never like know. And like you mentioned, Benedict, some of the most beautiful pictures we've been able to play with in uh, politi political stories. Yes, <laughs> yes you've got to take your wins. All right, I think we'll leave it there, guys. Yeah, nice positive thing to end on. We yeah. don't do that that often, so it's good. Kāpai, <laughs> well, tēnei te mihi nui, kia koutou, e whakarongo maina, e mātaki maina, i tēnei te wiki o te reo Māori. This was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering this Māori language week. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. It's available around this time each week on One News Now, and check us out on your favourite podcasting app.